Iran is a very hot topic today, so I would like to clarify from my perspective what is really happening there. I will be giving you a brief history of Iran, laying out the players involved today, and providing analysis on future movements that might occur in the region. By the end of this episode, you will break the matrix that would have utilized your lack of knowledge to exploit your emotions in regard to this part of United States foreign affairs. Knowing this type of information will empower you to be present with the consciousness of the worldwide awakening that is destroying the matrix. I hope you will be excited for the future of Iran and the world. We are witnessing history. If you enjoy the podcast, please leave a rating, review, and feel free to share this with your family and friends. And I mean rating and review by on podcast. You can actually hit the five-star button. You can write a review if you want, or you can just hit the five stars. Helps me a lot. Uh, helps the podcast get more popular. Now, as most of you know, um, some of you have already become some of my loyal customers uh, in Longevity, and that is phenomenal. And for that, I thank you because I really just fund myself. Uh, and today I'm going to plug a specific product that I take every day. And I think I'm going to be very particular about some of the products I decide to promote here. It's going to be things that I really do believe in uh, and not only believe in them, but actually take them myself, right? Uh, and I'm going to show for the viewers here that can see it's going to be this coffee. Um, I drink it every single day. There's all kinds of flavors. I personally get it in the ground version of it because I have a Keurig cup that's reusable. And so I'll do that. It's part of my morning routine. I wake up and I just get my cup of coffee. It's really the first thing that I do. Uh, and so you can get a, a the bean version or you can even get the K-cup version of the coffee as well. And what's really insane about this promotion that's going on right now is it's buy one, get one free. So yes, there's no gimmick. It's just buy one, get one free. So any of the coffee that you can find on the link that I will provide on the description of this video uh, and if you can't find it, uh, you can look at it on my bio on Instagram and on Facebook. So if you're interested in being my customer and you're not my customer yet, you can sign up through that link and just pay for retail. You're going to save money anyways because you're getting a, a whole bag for free. Uh, but if again, if you're already a customer or want to sign up as a preferred customer, that link will be provided. Uh, but for those of you who are already customers of Something Nutrition and Longevity, if you have not tried the coffee yet, it's phenomenal. We have our own plantation that we own. The company owns it in Nicaragua. And it's a it's a family-owned uh, business there. And it's it's absolutely wonderful. So uh, the, the all the profits that go uh, that are being used for the coffee, by the way, they go towards the nonprofit organization called Be the Change Foundation that Longevity has. So uh, as most of you know, like I said, I promote um, or I fund myself. So, you know, th by just being my customer and buying something like a $15 bag of coffee, get a free one. I mean, that stuff helps me out, helps you out because you're getting, you're taking, uh, and this is the last thing I'll say about this, but you're taking something that you currently purchase. Again, if you're not a coffee drinker, you know, maybe try it. And this is a healthy version of that, if you can imagine, but you're, you're taking a purchase you're already making monthly or, or bi-monthly 
You're taking that purchase and then you're using it towards people and things that you believe in. So not only are you going to help me out, right, because uh, I make commissions off of this, uh, but you're also helping yourself because this coffee is extremely healthy. Uh, it's way better than what you can find in stores and it's at a better price and you get a free bag. So it's just a triple 360 degree win. I would literally be crazy if I didn't tell you about it. So all that stuff will be provided for in the uh, description below. So feel free to check that out. Um, but we are going to rock and roll. I'm going to be reading off of here. The first thing we're going to cover here, guys, is um, the history of Iran. So Iran was once Persia, by the way. So we're going to go over. I'm going to be referring to an article, but I'm just going to be reading from it here. So the so-called diplomacy currently being conducted by international surrogates to control the momentum of Iranian nuclear ambitions is conducted by the very same people who saturated the region with nuclear weapons technology. Iran, in one sovereign form or another, has been operating for 2,500 plus years. The Median Empire allied with the Babylonians to capture Nineveh in 612 BC. Cyrus the Great, a descendant of Achaemenes, conquered the Median Empire to establish the Achaemenid Empire. Now, I could be butchering that, by the way. The Achaemenid Empire in Persis for more than two centuries stretched from the Indus Valley to Egypt. So again, this is just some of the very, very early history of Persia. Uh, hidden in the halls of history, irony reveals Persia championed the emancipation of Jewish slaves from Babylonian captivity during the Greco-Persian Wars. Isn't that insane? After the fall of Babylon, Cyrus the Great guided Jewish slaves to Yehud province to rebuild the second temple of Jerusalem. The Babylonian slavery and the subsequent return to Israel was a pivotal biblical event between, between Yahweh and the people of Israel. Persia played both a pivotal, a pivotal historic and biblical role in preserving the Jewish people and homeland. Now, just as a brief pause there, you're not going to really hear a lot of that from Israel today. From Israel today, you hear a lot of discrimination, really towards the Iranian uh, government, which is very true. We're going to get into that. Uh, it's not the Iranian people that are the wrongdoing or the wrongdoers. Uh, it really is the government Iran of Iran, um, the Ayatollahs, the mullahs that have control there. So, But again, I just think it's ironic, and that's the beauty of it here, is what we're seeing is Iran, or at least the region uh, that was once Persia, actually helped the Jews, so emancipated the Jews from the Babylonians. So again, it just from modern history, you wouldn't even think that is possible. But for people who understand history, you know that the Persian Empire was, again, a, a crucial biblical role in, uh, in, in, in history. So fast forward a millennium, right? After the Muslim conquest of Persia, the Safavid dynasty of the Sufi order ascended to power from 1501 to 1722. The Twelver school of Shia Islam was established as the official religion of the empire. Shah Abbas I fought the Ottoman Empire over modern Iraq, courted European monarchs, and remained resistant to Spanish and Portuguese overtures to end the relationship with Britain. 
1622, the English East India Company helped Shah Abbas retake Hormuz from the Portuguese. It was the beginning of a long-running British interest in Iran. Now, again, this is tit-for-tat with European powers that have controlled the Middle East, controlled Northern Africa for a very long time. And so all the different shipping lanes and shipping routes to this day, very important. And so that's why we see uh, British interests there. Uh, the British have always, they've gone back about maybe now about 200, 300 years. So um, there's different feelings towards the British there in Iran. People feel like they should run their own country. And it's very, very interesting in that way. So let's go over some more modern history in Iran. Okay. So let's see here. Um, well, let's first and foremost, let me pull this up. It's just taking a little minute for the Wi-Fi to connect there. So in Iran, we, we do understand that, um, you know, there's, there's a lot of different modern history that is very, very important that not a lot of people know. Okay. And so I'm going to read from you an article here that uh, is common, you know, to what we believe as the media tells us and stuff. And then I'm going to, I'm going to pretty much turn that around and explain to you guys some of the CIA's involvement in some of the modern overthrows in Iran. Okay. So uh, I'm going to read from, this is a uh, Rick Santorum, who's, who was a Republican presidential candidate. And this is what he's, ref uh, the article is referring to, uh, how, how wrong he was actually about Iran. So, uh, first it says, Santorum says Iran has been at war with the United States since 1979. Ron Paul, who's a libertarian uh, and was a Republican candidate for president uh, back in 2008, Ron Paul points out that the bad blood between Americans and Iranians began in 1953 when a CIA coup installed the Shah. Indeed, we should remember that before 1953, the Iranians tended to look very warmly upon the Americans, who, unlike the British, had left the Iranians alone. Again, referring back to the British and their involvement, long story. Their democratically elected leader, Mohammad Mossadegh, uh, or Masada, I uh, can't say that correctly, probably. Again, er, if you're Persian, I'm butchering it. Uh, but again, he was partly for his popularity due to his resistance to British corporate imperialism. Uh, this was even Time Magazine's Man of the Year in 1951. So again, we're looking at some of that historical uh, perspective on it. Time Magazine made the elected leader, uh, Mohammed Mossadegh, Time Magazine's Man of the Year, right? So it's in 1951, guys. So it's just really recent history and people forget about it. So not only did the U.S. install the Shah two years later, the CIA taught his secret police force, Savak, how to torture. Savak went on to imprison and torture tens of thousands of political prisoners, adopting such practices of nearly unfathomable brutality as using broken glass and boiling water on subjects' rectums, mutilating women's breasts, and cooking victims alive. So after years of being ruled by this U.S.-backed regime, the Iranians overthrew the Shah, and the Islamic Revolution of 1979 swept the nation. But despite what the propagandists say, Iranians still did not hate Americans for our freedom, only for our government's foreign policy. All the attempts to get Iranians angry at Americans for our culture or modernity failed. 
Michael Schuer from former CIA counterterrorism expert points this out. So I'm gonna, I just wanted to read briefly from that article. So what, what is what is being explained there is that in the 50s, they had a um, they had a democratically elected leader. Now remember, this is Iran that was still secular, which means it wasn't run by a religious, um, I guess you could say, uh, mullahs. Well, and that's in specific Iran, but or or in Mus uh, in uh, Islam. But the point is that they weren't being run by a religion; they were being run by this democratically elected person. So what happened was our CIA working with British intelligence overthrew that leader in 1953. So back in the 50s was when some shady stuff was going on. This was also the first time the CIA even overthrew a government. So the CIA has done this many times after that. Remember, the CIA was um, a combination of British intelligence and American intelligence formed during World War II. So in recent times, let's go over some of the Iranian revolution. So what happened in 1979? So again, like you said, or like what I just mentioned, the 50s going on into the 60s, you know, we had some, somewhat of a democratically elected government, right? Or I'm sorry, let me put it this way. I'm sorry. Rewind. The 50s going into 1979. So in between that time period, it was a U.S. CIA-backed regime that tortured and killed political opponents, but it wasn't a threat to America. Now, again, you can argue about these regime change wars and things like that, but this is why American intelligence does things like this. They want to make sure that they control other governments like puppets. And so you can say that's a good thing or bad thing. I personally think that gets us in trouble. And that's exactly what happened with the 1979 revolution. So let's go over this, the Iranian revolution. Okay, so the Iranian revolution, also called Islamic revolution, Persian popular uprising in Iran in 1978-79 that resulted in the toppling of the monarchy on February 11, 1979 and led to the establishment of an Islamic Republic. So, again, this was a religious revolution. Does that make any sense, guys? Y'all following? This is a religious revolution, not backed by the CIA, um, although we had, you know, we had our our ideas of what we wanted there, and so I, I I guess you could say that in one way or another, our intelligence was still involved in this revolution. Now, let's think a little bit prelude. I'm again repeating myself a little bit here, but again, just to clarify. So this is just what this article in uh, Britannica is saying. So prelude to revolution, the 1979 revolution, which brought together Iranians across many different social groups, has its roots in Iran's long history. These groups, which included clergy, landowners, intellectuals, and merchants, had previously come together in the Constitutional Revolution of 1905 and 1911. Efforts toward satisfactory reform were continually stifled, however, amid re-emerging social tensions as well as foreign intervention from Russia. Sorry, restarting that uh, video there. Uh, but efforts toward satisfactory reform were continually stifled. However, amid re-emerging social tensions as well as foreign intervention from Russia, the United Kingdom, and later the United States. The United Kingdom helped Reza Shah Pavlivi establish a monarchy in 1921. Along with Russia, the UK then pushed Reza Shah into exile in 1941, and his son, Mohammad Reza Pahlavi, took the throne. 
1953, amid a power struggle between Mohammad Reza Shah and Prime Minister Mohammad Mossadegh, that's like we were mentioned earlier, uh, the U.S. Central Intelligence Agency, CIA, and the U.K. Secret Intelligence Service, MI6, orchestrated a coup against Mossadegh's government. It's 1953. So again, we're just repeating ourselves there, but it's just giving you a clarity into prior to the revolution of 1979. Years later, Mohammad Reza Shah dismissed the parliament and launched the White Revolution, an aggressive modernization program that upended the wealth and influence of landowners and clerics, disrupted rural economies, led to rapid urbanization and westernization, and prompted concerns over democracy and human rights. The program was economically successful, but the benefits were not distributed evenly. Though the transformative events on social norms and institutions were widely felt, opposition to the Shah's policies was uh, accentuated in the 1970s when world monetary instability and fluctuations in Western oil consumption seriously threatened the country's economy. Still directed in large part toward high-cost projects and programs, a decade of extraordinary economic growth, heavy government spending, and a boom in oil prices led to high rates of inflation and the stagnation of Iranians' buying power and standard of living. So again, on one end of the spectrum, you have good things happening, uh, some of the westernization happening, but it was happening by force. And as we were just mentioning earlier, the CIA taught this guy's police force on how to torture people, right? So in addition to mounting economic difficulties, so now the country's suffering. So this is again between, uh, this is between 1950s and 1970s, right? So in addition to mounting economic difficulties, socio-political repression by the Shah's regime increased in the 1970s. Outlets for political participation were minimal, and opposition parties such as the National Front, a loose coalition of nationalist clerics and non-communist left-wing parties, again, non-communist left-wing parties, and the pro-Soviet party uh, was marginalized or outlawed. So again, there's no other political parties now. You see what I'm saying? So yo, it's a, it, yeah, it's a democracy. We're going to vote, but it's kind of like a bunch of front groups and they're not getting what they want. They're not getting, they're not even getting a platform. So social and political protest was often met with censorship, surveillance, or harassment, and illegal detention and torture were common. This is where we're going in America, by the way. This is exactly what communists do everywhere they take control. For the first time in more than half a century, the secular intellectuals, many of whom were fascinated by the populist appeal of Ayatollah Rahola Khomeini, a former professor of philosophy in Qom, who had been exiled in 1964 after speaking out harshly against the Shah's recent reform program, abandoned their aim of reducing the authority and power of the Shia Ulama, religious scholars, uh, that's what they are, and argued that with the help of the ulama, the Shah could be overthrown. So again, now what's going on is um, Ayatollah Khomeini is the father of the current prime minister, or I guess you could say the Shah or the Ayatollah of Iran. So this is key. So this is his father we're talking about. He was exiled in 1964, okay, because he was a religious leader. And he was getting religious groups to start maybe formalizing uh, a almost like a political party. So that's why he was exiled. All right. So continuing, 
in this environment, now you can see, guys, what's going on now. The Shaw, uh, the, the this this sort of uh, torture and uh, not allowing people to politically get involved. This is, this is an environment we're in now, right? This is going into the 70s now. So in this environment, members of the National Front, which is this other party, uh, uh, a party against the Shah, and the Tudea Party, which is the uh, Soviet-backed party, and their various splinter groups, so these are different groups, all against the Shah of 1953, uh, going into the 70s now. This is before the, the this is leading up to the 1979 revolution. So now they joined the ulama in broad opposition to the Shah's regime. So now you have all the political powers that weren't allowed, that were censored, tortured, all of it. Now they're joining forces. So it's the communist party, if you can imagine this, the communists and the Islamic um, uh, religious groups, which is now a political party because that's what Islam is. They are now joining together. So Khomeini, who was banned in 1964, who was the father of the current Ayatollah of Iran, continued to preach in exile about the evils of the Pavlavi regime, accusing the Shah of irreligion and subservience to foreign powers. Thousands of tapes and print copies of Khomeini's speeches were smuggled back into Iran during the 1970s as an increasing number of unemployed and working poor Iranians, mostly new migrants from the countryside who were disenchanted by the cultural vacuum of modern urban Iran, turned to the ulama for guidance. So now you have working class people working now with listening to this guy the uh, I, uh the the ayat the future ayatollah uh khomeini they're listening to his speeches they're being you know galvanized they're being convinced that this religious leader should be our leader okay so the shah's dependence on the united states his close ties with israel then engaged in extended hostilities with the overwhelmingly muslim arab states and his regime's ill-considered economic policies served to fuel the potency of dissident rhetoric with the masses. So again, this is a American-backed regime that's in power during the 70s before the Iranian Revolution, which was a religious revolution. They're backed by the U.S. They're hostile towards other uh, nations. Yes, it was a secular uh, democracy, but as you can see, it was more of a... Uh, totalitarian state so it's not really capitalism it's really a government-controlled state but you have the communists who are trying to overthrow this so they're working together uh, again this is soviet-backed forces communists working with the uh religious groups of iran headed by the this guy this religious leader right named khomeini okay so now you have this really big again i'm just showing you guys what's going on what led to 1979 why did that happen right i hope you guys are kind of understanding it so far uh again this is just very very simple I'm not trying to complicate it in any way but again i hope you guys can uh, can follow along here so uh this is so we have a bunch of things going on the shah is 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 host creating hostilities with other arab nations uh, again these are mostly muslim nations all right so now outwardly uh we're continuing to read with a swiftly expanding economy and a rapidly modernizing infrastructure, everything was going well in Iran, but in little more than a generation, Iran had changed from a traditional conservative and rural society to one that was industrial, modern, and urban. The sense that in both agriculture and industry too much had been attempted too soon, and the government either through corruption or incompetence, however you want to look at it, had failed to deliver all that was promised 
was manifested in demonstrations against the regime in 1978. So this is leading to now the actual revolution. So here we are, continuing to read. In January of 1978, incensed by what they considered to be slanderous remarks made against Khomeini, uh, a Tehran newspaper, thousands of young, um, I'm going to get this right here, it's Madrasa, which is a religious school, students, so thousands of young students, took to the streets. They were followed by thousands more Iranian youth mostly unemployed recent immigrants from the countryside who began protesting the regime's excesses. The Shah, weakened by cancer and stunned by the sudden outpouring of hostility against him, uh, facilitated between concession and repression. Assuming the protests to be part of an international conspiracy against him, right? Isn't that, you know, that's pretty easy to, to predict, right? There's some kind of conspiracy against him. Now, again, this is the Shah. This is 1979 revolution. Many people were killed by government forces in anti-regime protests, serving only to fuel the violence in Shia country, where martyrdom played a fundamental role in religious expression. So notice, you have the, the Islamic Muslims now are becoming political. Martyrdom, what is martyrdom? Martyrdom is killing yourself for a cause, right? It's it's sacrifice, right? And so what do we see? You know, we see a lot of Alu Akbar. We see a lot of this sort of like, I'm going to, you know, bomb strapped to my vest type of explosion, right? And so this is what's going on in Iran to overthrow the government of Iran. Now, Again, like I said, you can say incompetence or uh, corruption. You can say either one, but the Shah was clearly not in favor with the Iranian people. So you, you, you basically are replacing one evil with another form of evil. And they didn't know it at the time. They did not know it at the time, but this religious Ayatollah is going to be almost even worse than the Shah. So this is, this, is, this, is what, this is what's so interesting about this historical perspective of Iran. So... Now, fatalities were followed by demonstrations to commemorate the customary 40-day milestone of mourning in Shia tradition, uh, and further casualties occurred at those protests, more uh, mortality and protest propelling one another forward. So as we see, we got a 40-day protest going on, we've got a lot of things going on. Thus, in spite of all government efforts, a cycle of violence began in which each death fueled further protest, and all protest from... The secular left and religious right was subsumed uh, under the cloak of Shia Islam and crowned by the revolutionary rallying cry, Alu Akbar. Here we are, Alu Akbar, quote unquote, God is great. This is everything that we hear today before they blow up places in Sweden and, you know, this is, this is all we hear. So this, uh, which could be heard at protests and which issued from the rooftops in the evening. So again, this is a religious revolution that's happening. The violence and disorder continued to escalate on September 8th. That's my birthday. The regime imposed martial law. Uh, again, martial law, very important aspect of that. It's where a government takes full control of all commerce, all infrastructure, all mobility, everything. And troops, so Continuing, and troops opened fire against demonstrators in Tehran, which is the capital of Iran, killing dozens or hundreds. Weeks later, government workers began to strike. On October 31st, oil workers also went on strike, which again, guys, oil, largest industry in Iran, bringing the oil industry to a halt. Demonstrations continued to grow. 
on December 10th, night uh, or December 10th again, this is 1978. Hundreds of thousands of protesters took to the streets in Tehran alone. So again, guys, that's hundreds of thousands. That's unbelievable. So again, this is just a religious revolution happening. It's in December of 1978. During his exile, Khomeini coordinated this absurgence of opposition first from Iraq and after 1978 from France. So what's happening is the future Ayatollah Khomeini, the religious leader, the, the, the guy who's conducting this revolution, he was first in Iraq in exile away from Iran, right? The Shah took him out. Then he went and he's now in France. And I guess you could say he's, I don't know what, he's on TV. You know, he's he's somehow, some way communicating with the people in Iran who are doing all of this. January of 1979, in what was officially described as a quote-unquote vacation, the Shah and his family fled Iran. So they left. So the current leaders leave January of 1979. The Regency Council established to run the country during the Shah's absence proved unable to function. So now the stay-behind government that was left there was basically unable to function. And the prime minister hastily appointed by the Shah before his departure, was incapable of effecting compromise with either his former National Front colleagues or Khomeini. So again, there's two groups, a religious group and a communist group. They're both trying to create a revolution. They're both, uh, well, they are creating a revolution there in Iran. And so neither one of those could compromise with the current government. They said, no, we're not going to compromise. So crowds in excess of 1 million demonstrated in Tehran, proving the wide appeal of Khomeini, who arrived in Iran amid wild rejoicing on February 1st. So again, he was in exile. Now the leader, uh, the father of the current leader of Iran, uh, the leader of the revolution, Ayatollah, future Ayatollah Khomeini, rejoicing uh, or comes in to Iran February 1st. Ten days later, on February 11th, Iran's armed forces declared their neutrality effectively ousting the Shah's regime. Wow. So, Bakatier, which was the uh, prime minister, he went into hiding eventually to find exile in France. So think about all this stuff going on and you know, you've got the whole thing, everything breaking apart, the Ayatollah, well now the Ayatollah, he he was out of the country, he was in France and then now he's back and he was rejoiced and everybody loved him and everybody um you know was just excited to be a part of this 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 new government, right? So In the aftermath, now on April 1st, following overwhelming support in a national referendum, Khomeini declared Iran an Islamic Republic. So here we go. This is the important part to it. And I know we're already like freaking almost 30 minutes in pretty much. So check this out. All right. This is April 1st. Now we have an Islamic Republic. Elements within the clergy promptly moved to exclude their former left-wing nationalist and intellectual allies from any positions of power in the new regime, and a return to conservative social values was enforced. Okay, let me, let me actually translate that for you. The religious Iranian faction of this revolution co combined with the communists when they took power, the ultimate supreme leader was the religious leader, okay? And he was referred to as the Ayatollah. 
Ayatollah Khomeini and his party or his religious party, if you could say, his control of the government, his faction of the revolution actually not only took out the communists who, who helped them get to power, they took them from positions of power. They said, nope, you can't run anything. You guys are worthless. Not only did they do that, they killed these people. So the very same people who were uh, in the revolution, a part of that revolution, they are now being killed by the other group. So it's two groups, maybe m multiple groups, but again, two main groups, a religious one and a, and a communist one, joined together, overthrew Iran, now the religious party, the religious faction of it has control and they begin killing people. This article isn't telling the full complete truth. But they began killing people, killing anybody that was a part of the Shah and the previous government and the communists. So all of the communists today, think about this, all the communists today in different parts of Europe and even in America, they believe that Islam is their friend. And what we see here clearly is that religious leaders in Islam know how to coerce, okay, co-op these uh, communists into taking political control. Once the Islamic control happens, we've seen this in Egypt. Uh, we're seeing this now in other places in Europe. This is super freaky in the UK and others. The, the Islamists or the Muslims, not all Muslims are bad, but again, these are the, the, the powerful ones. They are, they are baiting the communists into a revolution because communism, you can't, you can't have communism by vote. I mean, Venezuela did, but the point is that nobody wants communism. Like when you really think about it, nobody wants communism. It's terrible. So think about this. As soon as they took control in Iran, the Ayatollah ordered them to be killed, silenced, tortured, imprisoned, or, or ran out of the country. Think about that. So next time you think about, you know, siding with the, the Muslims, just know that that's what they do. That's, that's history. That's not being politically, you know, correct. This is being real. This is the truth of what happened. So, uh, let's see elements within the clergy promptly. We already did that. Oh, Intellectual allies, yeah, this is this is interesting. So, they, oh yeah, and in a nice way that this article says, oh, and a return to conservative social values was enforced. No, 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 no. We're talking like they put in an Islamic rule, and that's what they're under right now. And people in Iran went out of it. So, here we go. Um. I'm going to, wow, this is, this is unbelievable. The Family Protection Act of 1967, which provided further guarantees and rights to women in marriage, was declared void. Let me say that one more time. The Family Protection Act of 1967, again, this was during a somewhat democracy, which provided further guarantees and rights to women in marriage, was declared void. And mosque based revolutionary bands known as comites, committees in Persian, patrolled the streets enforcing Islamic codes of dress and behavior and dispatching impromptu justice to perceived enemies of the revolution. So again, 
communists, okay, leftists in this country, right? The communists, the people who are socialists, the people who think about this stuff, they think that they're a part of this social revolution for women's rights and all that stuff. But when you partner, it's just blatant, okay? When you partner with with the Muslims, they will enact their code of ethics. And that means that they are willing to strip away women's ability to vote, women's uh, rights in, in, a, in a trial, in a marriage, and all this shit. So they're willing to strip all of that. So just remember that next time for all of you feminists out there. This is what happens when you allow, well, really communists, but when you allow these, uh, when you co-op Muslims to, to try to take political control. So, you know, we're now being told that we have to wear the, these, that this secular nation has to, you know, wear um, hijabs and other garments of clothing that are, um, a part of the religious tradition of Islam. So, throughout most of 1979, the Revolutionary Guards, that's what they that's the military of Iran there, then an informal religious militia formed by Khomeini, Ayatollah, to forestall another CIA-backed coup as in the days of Mossadegh. So again, now Khomeini is very aware of our being the United States CIA involvement in their politics. So he created the Revolutionary Guard to defend Iran from American political intervention. See that? See how what goes around comes around? That's why on the news media and everywhere else, you see a lot of hate towards Iran and Israel and Iran's the enemy and all that. And to some degree, they are. The, 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 the Ayatollahs and stuff, they're not popular in Iran today. But again, this is this is a government that is not backed by the U.S. They're not even we don't even have an embassy there in Iran. So just think about that. They're they really don't like the U.S. Okay, and they sure as hell don't like the British either. So, okay, um, engaged in similar activity. This is what's this is what's so ironic about this whole situation is that the Khomeini, uh, the Ayatollah, engaged in similar activity aimed at intimidating and repressing political groups, not under the control of the ruling Revolutionary Council and its sister Islamic Republican Party, both clerical organizations loyal to Khomeini. So now we've got all this other stuff going on. Now that the Shah has, or not the Shah, but the Ayatollah has power, now he starts going after everybody else. So again, you're replacing one evil with another evil. Case in point. The violence and brutality often exceeded that which had taken place under the Shah. Think about that. Let me say that one more time. The violence and brutality under the Islamic Republic of Iran often exceeded that which had taken place under the Shah. So again, an American-backed Shah, he had some shit that he was doing, yeah, but now the Islamic Republic, okay, with these councils and the... the, the, the uh, the Revolutionary Council, all that, they are now conducting torture worse than that of the Shah. Think about that, okay? The militias and the clerics they supported made every effort to suppress Western cultural influence. So now you have a backwards-thinking group here. So now they don't want anything to do with any Western, uh, Western anybody. And so, facing persecution and violence, many of the Western-educated elite fled the country. So, Iran used to be this place, okay, their, their, their Shah was not the best, and yeah, there was a lot of problems. But at the end of the day, 
People went to Iran. They enjoyed Iran. Americans, Europeans, Westerners. I mean, we visited. It was a cool place to be. It was super wealthy. There was concerts to go to. It was an Arab nation. It was a beautiful, wonderful place. And a lot of people in Iran today, if you're listening to this, you all want to return to this way of life. But not under a Shah, but under a real democratic rule, which we will be getting to in this podcast. It's unreal. Yes, I'm going for a long time, but I believe it is 100% worth it. So this anti-Western sentiment eventually manifested itself in the November 1979 seizure. Of, so just one year. So just, you know, they took power in February, right? They, they ousted the government. So in February, now we are in November 1979, the seizure of 66 hostages at the U.S. Embassy. This is why we don't have an embassy there by a group of Iranian protesters demanding the extradition of the Shah, who at that time was undergoing medical treatment in the United States. So they basically had the Shah who had fled the country. Now he's in the U.S. who, again, we backed him, right? So we put him in power. So now he's, you know, with his tail tucked between his legs, he is in America. So these these uh, these Islamic Republic Revolutionary Guards, these protesters, come into the U.S. Embassy, tear the place up, hold 66 Americans as hostage. That's in 1979. So through the embassy takeover, Khomeini's supporters could claim to be as anti-imperialist as the political left. This ultimately gave them the ability to suppress most of the regime's left-wing and moderate opponents. The assembly of experts, overwhelmingly dominated by clergy, put a new constitution to referendum the following month, and it was overwhelmingly approved. The new constitution created a religious government based on Khomeini's vision of government of the jurist and gave sweeping powers to the Rabar, or leader. The first Rabar was Khomeini himself, uh, Ayatollah Rabar, similar, th similar uh, verbiages. Moderates, such as provisional prime minister Mehdi Basar Ghan and the republic's first president, who opposed holding the hostages, were steadily forced from power by, quote-unquote, conservatives within the government who questioned their revolutionary zeal. So again, guys, that is a huge uh, recap on just how critical this part of uh, history was during that time period. So again, I'm gonna be I'm gonna be taking just like a quick second to replace my camera battery because it's running out already, and I wanted to make sure that we collect all this. So we're gonna be I'm gonna resume in the podcast here in a second, and um, you'll see as as I'll just you know be flipping over. So hold on, be right back. It's funny because this is definitely going to be, yes, a two-part podcast, but more importantly, probably one of the longest podcasts that I've done. Uh, I went through just so much information, so we're just getting past that first part, which is to kind of explain a little bit as to what what is going on in Iran or what's leading to today, right? And so by learning about the revolution, by learning about the history even before that, obviously, it's a super complex history, the Persian you know, dynasty, all of that. But getting you up to speed is super important to having a full understanding of the entire situation. Um, now, moving into the second part was um, just the different revolutionary factions that are going on in Iran. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put this link in the, in the description as well. This book right here, From Ashes to Glory, it's probably backwards right there on the camera, but this book, um, it's about a, a man named Ramin Parsa, 
and he was a former Muslim in Iran, lived in Iran uh, during the revolution, witnessed all of this, you know, turmoil and the changes and all of this stuff, um, and then lived under the the tyranny that is that regime. And so he actually became a Christian through a satellite TV program. So he was a he was wor- he works in IT. So he was able to actually get past the firewall that's in there in Iran, and he was able to um, actually access the the uh, different satellite channels. And he would watch movies and American movies and all that stuff. And then one of the things he came across was a uh, a TV or um, a church. Sir, uh, service going on on TV. So anyway, just really interesting, fascinating story. The book, he's got his whole, you know, his whole life, his story is amazing. And he explains Islam and he explains what it really is and what it seems to be versus what it really is and all this stuff, how it works, everything and what happened in Iran from his perspective, his family. He left everything and he went to Turkey and now he's in the United States and I believe he is a United States citizen now. So obviously, crazy story and I wanted to read for you guys just um, just from the book, some excerpts from the book just to give you guys an idea as to like what what is going on in this and... Um, Let's see. I want to see from uh, – uh, yeah, so let me just start from here. The citizens of Iran thought that Islam's reign would bring out peace and justice, but they were deceived. And by the way, his his writing translated to English just a little bit off. So if I'm just reading exactly what he wrote. I might even correct it, but uh, that's what I've noticed throughout the book. Just the editing was a little bit off. He, he clearly wrote it in um, Arabic and then translated it. But anyway uh, – the selfishness of mullahs and their false promises of free gas, water, and oil money brought nothing but bloodshed, pain, and destruction. Those who think and believe differently from Muslims count as infidels and enemies of our Islam and the revolution. Iran has had the highest number of executions, stoning, imprisonment, and torture of any nation. After the disputed election, well, think about that statistic. I mean, more execution, stoning, imprisonment, and torture of any other nation. I mean, that's insane to think about. After the disputed election of uh, Mohammed Abadji, uh, uh, I'm going to say that right, Ahmad Dinjad, give or take, that was in 2009, many people who protested their stolen votes were killed. The death of a student uh, named, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to butcher this one, Nida Aga Sultan, garnered global attention after she was fatally shot in the heart as she walked back to her car from the protests. I actually kind of remember that, weirdly enough, but that was like global news. Bystanders captured her death on video and streamed it live over the internet. During that time, Basij, a paramilitary Islamic group, fought people on the streets, and many young people were later raped in jail. Today, 70%, think about this statistic, 70% of Iranians are under the age of 30, most of whom are educated, open-minded, and with God-given talents and God-given gifts and talents. But they are in a colossal jail, and that jail is Iran. So, as you can see, just starting with this, this little bit of book, this is at the end of the book. I mean, he's just reviewing some of the stuff he's already been talking about, uh, which is more or less bringing us to the current day in Iran. And this book was written in 2018, okay? 
many of those who were responsible for or had a part in the Islamic Revolution have been remorseful. It didn't take long before they began to pay for what they had done with their blood and that of their children. The same people who said, the devil left and the angel came, then said, death to us who said death to the Shah. Remember, as I just went over in part one of this podcast, part one for me, but just the beginning for you, the Shah was inputted or in place um, by the United States government, the CIA. So again, these are people saying that when they helped the communists and the Islamic Republic take control, they now regret that, right? So to this day, they are still paying for it. Indeed, many who reminisce the pre-revolution era are grieved and ask themselves, what have we done? Many Iranians are ashamed of what their country has become, a sponsor and hotbed of terrorism. We can go over that later. Even as I write this book, many Iran, many in Iran are in prison for their Christian faith or for holding opinions different from the Islamic rulers. Many Christians in underground churches have been arrested in the past decades and their leaders killed by the Islamic regime. Pastors have laid down their lives for the sake of the gospel and the church. I personally know three women whose husbands were killed in Iran because they were active pastors who had confronted or are converted from Islam. So again, I'm just, just reading from it. I'm going to skip over, though, to uh, what, what he says. Again, this is him. He's, he's a Christian, so this is from his perspective, his transition. Uh, and this is uh, the title. Uh, this little part of the chapter is called God's Plan for Iran. I'm going to go over some of this stuff, and then I'm going to go over actual groups that are making a difference in Iran. That way you're up to speed. The Lord showed me at the beginning of 2017 that the Iranian regime will soon fall. This is very interesting. There have already been many protests and uprisings. It's 2018. Think about that, right? Think about what happened at the beginning of 2020. We're about to get to that. It's like a volcano that is smoking and has the signs of an eruption. People are tired of being bullied by the Islamicists. Inflation is skyrocketing. Unemployment is at 12%. Iran is known throughout the world not for its technological discoveries or economic achievements, but for being the first sponger of terrorism. Just recently, many people in various cities protest against the Islamic regime despite the danger of getting shot or getting arrested or and tortured. There are many young people in Iran who are tired of the status quo. People are fed up with 40 years of oppression and have nothing to lose anymore. In 2009, uprising, a young woman named Nida was walking on the street and was shot by the Islamic regime and died on the spot. So again, that was, you know, going back to the, the video that was viral. As I'm writing, people are protesting on the street now. The Islamic regime is on the verge of collapse. For years, the Islamic regime played games with people. They held elections just as a show to prove the Western world that they still have legitimacy. So again, they were having these fake elections. They would, you know, the votes would be counted and then it would just, the, the Ayatollah would win, the Islamic Republic would win every single time as if they were very popular. Um, they would put a hardliner in power. After they squeezed the people, then they would bring a reformer, quote unquote. So people had to choose between bad and worse. So this is the way regime brought people to the polls and had cameras ready to show the world that people, uh, people were still voting. They even would bring people from villages into the capital on the anniversary of the revolution to deceive the world, an image that was simply not true. So again, just to 
have the cameras out, photos taken of a massive group of people out there supporting, you know, the uh, the Ayatollah Khomeini and all these people. So those days are over. On December 28, 2017, people came on the streets without a leader spontaneously in the city of Mashhad. People were expressing their displeasure because of inflation and high costs of almost everything. This time, people crossed the line and chanted, death to Ayatollah, and we no longer worship Arabs, is what they said, referring to Islam and Muhammad. Not only they rejected the regime, but Islam as a whole. People also chanted, no reformer, no fundamentalist, it's over. People also ear down the protesters of Ayatollah Khomeini. So, Ayatollah Khomeini is now the son of the original Ayatollah Khomeini that was part of the revolution in 1979. Giving you guys that updates. The protest inspired other cities to rise. Now, this is in 2017. President Donald J. Trump also rightfully expressed his support to the Iranian people multiple times. Unlike Barack Obama, who didn't, who did not only who not only sub didn't support people in 2009 uprising, but also sent multiple letters to Ayatollah Khomeini and struck a one-sided deal which only helped the regime, lifted the sanctions, and sent millions in cash to only be spent in sponsoring the terrorists. Uh, but that deal didn't benefit the people at all. Thus, it is the beginning of an end. So he's just kind of referencing some of this stuff politically. Uh, we know from studying the Old Testament and its messianic prophecies that most Jews in the time of Jesus anticipated the coming of a Messiah who would rescue them from the evil Roman oppressors by leading a violent military uprising. However, Jesus did not buy into the nationalistic rhetoric of the time. Make no mistake, he did come to save the Jews, and he was indeed the Messiah, but his true or his rescue plan was far from what the people had in mind. Instead of organizing an army and strategizing for war and a violent overthrow of the government, Jesus taught and demonstrated that unconditional love, nonviolence, meekness, and obedience to God will God's will uh, were the road to true peace and freedom. Rather than incite anarchy, he served the poor, healed the weak, healed the sick, calmed the storms, uh, performed miracles, uh, and performed miracles, including raising the dead. Now, um, that's going to be, that's going to be if I'm going to read from the book, but you guys get the point. If you want to read the whole book, of course, it's a quick read, 200 or so pages long, not really that much. Um, you can go and find it on the link in the description below as well. Now, Clearly, the guy's got a Christian perspective. Uh, for those of you who just aren't Christian or anything, he's clearly had a change of heart. So very, very important to consider all these kinds of things. Um, but moving on. So there are two different organizations, well, two major organizations that are dedicated to ending the Islamic regime in Iran. So let's go over exactly what those are. All right. So one of those is called the Iran Liberation Congress. To be simple with you guys, I'm going to just go to their website and I'm going to read to you um, what they're about is or their founding principles, okay? So there's 10 of them. Let me just go through them with you. Now, again, this is a Iranian people in Iran actually trying to do something politically and make a change, okay? So these are the founding principles. Number one, peaceful and complete Removal of the Islamic Republic in Iran through nonviolent means unless acting in self-defense. Number two, preservation of Iran's territories and their independence. 
Number three, while Persian is the official and national language of Iran, every person has the right to learn their native tongue. Number four, the tricolor flag with the lion and sun is the nation's historic and national symbol. Number five, separation of religion and state and freedom of religion for all people. That's massive. Imagine having an Islamic Republic, which is you know, run by the mullahs, which are basically just religious leaders and scholars. They run the whole country. Imagine having the freedom of religion there in Iran. Think about that. How cool would that be? Now, number six is the adoption of the UN Human Rights Declaration and all of its amendments. So it's just to um, basically be a part of the United Nations, which I'm not a fan of, but the point is that they're trying to be a part a part of the Human Rights Declaration, which was basically to clear to to be involved in that part of the United Nations means that your people are, are, you know, there's a democracy in your country and that people dictate the reality of politics there. Now, um, number seven, after the removal of the Islamic Republic of Iran, the people of Iran through universal suffrage will decide the nation's future and political system through free and fair elections. Number eight, protected right of all your Iranian citizens to participate in their own local affairs. So meaning like regular people can get involved in their local politics. Number nine, abolition of any and all programs involved with creating or using weapons of mass destruction, including biological or nuclear weapons. Number 10, support of Crown Prince Reza Pahlavi as a unifying voice to advocate for the removal of the Islamic regime, at which time the people of, the people of Iran will democratically decide the future political system in Iran, i.e. Uh, a parliamentary, uh, parliamentary republic or a parliamentary monarchy, so allowing people to decide what kind of government they want to have. So that's what I'm, I'm just going to read those principles. If you want to learn more about that, I'll probably put the link here in the description as well. Uh, it's called the IranLiberationCongress.org. So let's move on to the next part or the next group. Now, this group is more of, I guess you could call them a, um, how do I put it? So this group is, well, okay, they're, they're called the Voice of Restart, the Restart Group, okay? So let, let me just read to you guys what the Restart Group is about, and honestly, phenomenal. I've heard the leader of this um, this group, and he really knows what he's talking about, and the way that they are going about their revolution and their information revolution is absolutely phenomenal. So I'm going to read to you guys uh, just a, a, like a couple paragraphs of what this, what this organization is all about. Restart is an influential political and mystical program run by the leader of Restart Opposition, Saeed Mohammed Hosseini, since 2015 and is broadcasted from his online broadcasted from his online radio station called Radio Pasto. Restart discusses philosophical and mystical topics, challenges the conventional structure of all the religious and instead focuses on Sufism, known as Erfan and Tasavvaf in Persian literature. It is noteworthy to mention that Restart Leader has stated numerous times that what he talks about in Restart Program 
in the restart program is not his own words, but the words of Persian and international elites and scholars such as Romi, Hafez, Sadi, Attar, Plato, Shakespeare, and many more. It should also be noted that Sufism, which is above all the which is above all the religions, will eventually assure Iranians a government, just as the reign of Shah Azmil of Safid dynasty and the great Achaemenid Achaemenid I'm not, I'm not gonna butcher that dynasty, which will be dominated by knowledge and wisdom in the form of aristocracy and aristocratic rules, namely meritocracy and elitism. So I'm not 100% with that again, but the point is that they want to return to what literally what the Persian Empire was. And so what this guy, um, I want to get his name, forgot his name. Well, his middle name is Muhammad, but what this guy is actually talking about is he wants obviously the end of the Islamic Republic as well and he wants there to be kind of like a constitution dealing with the Persian Empire something similar to it if you hear a little squeak noise by the way that's my dog downstairs like biting on her little toy but anyways so okay Continue to read this 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 whole thing. Restart opposition led by Saeed Mohammed Hosseini was formed in 2015 with the aim of encouraging every single Iranian to take action to change the regime in Iran. It currently has over 20 million members and is the largest and most powerful opposition in Iran. Think about that right there. Of a country of, what, I think 83 million people, 20 million people are known to be in this group. So that's like a huge portion, obviously, of people. Uh, that can make a real difference. Remember how I talked about the 3% rule and how it only takes 3% of the population of any country, any place to make a real difference? Think about 20 million and 80 million, okay? Yeah, it's more than a fourth. So um, in order to follow their leader, restart opposition members need to download, think about this, they have to download audio and or video files provided by Saeed Mohammed Hosseini on his Telegram channel which is a, uh, it's just another social media app, kind of like a chat, like a group me. So far, each of the files has been downloaded over 1 million times, and it is expected to increase as more and more people are hearing about Restart. Although the cyber army of the Iranian government has been trying hard to take down his social media pages and were successful in closing down his Facebook and Instagram accounts, they have not succeeded in reducing the number of downloads from Restart accounts on Telegram. Due to the above programs, Saeed Mohammed Hosseini has become a powerful opposition figure in Iranian politics. After only a year of broadcasting restart, about 20 million young and intelligent Iranians had already begun to listen to his radio programs, and it spread quickly with the help of social media platforms such as Telegram, Instagram, and Facebook. Restart is known to be the largest movement in Iranian modern history led by historical and political awareness of its leader and members. The young people who listened to Restart and Shab Bekar, Iran, also undertook collective political acts, which were called challenges by the Restart opposition leader. Check this out, guys. This is really freaking interesting. It's like a freaking movie we're about to be listening to. I'm about to tell you, these are these little challenges that this little political group came up with to, uh, uh, to galvanize the people. So again, very different than just protesting and, and being on the open. This is more sub... You know, you have to be more subvert. Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Subverted, and you have to be uh, underground, if you will, uh, for lack of a better term, 
with this political opposition because you can't be open about this. So they're going to freaking put you in prison, torture you like they've already done many, 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 many people. So check this out, guys. They have these challenges. Look at this. The challenges include... Number one, uh, the profile picture challenge in which opposition members wrote, quote, I am a restart member too in Farsi on their palms and posted the picture of that as their social media profile pictures. So that's pretty interesting, right? The paintball challenge, which was done in the weeks leading up to the Iranian presidential election in May 2017. In this challenge, Hosseini's followers were asked to throw paintballs at Iranian government buildings, including Iranian embassies. So funny enough, this this website is like scrolling. It's taking a while to scroll. But anyways, they, they always wanted to ch- think about these challenges. So the profile picture one, right? Just change your profile picture on social media and basically say, I'm a part of this group. I'm a part of this movement, right? So this is what this is. This is the other thing. So the paintball challenge was they threw little paintballs at uh, buildings that were considered the uh, in the uh, um, Iranian or Islamic Republic control, right? So many people took up this challenge and did so in Iran, Australia, Germany, and England. So this is just this is more than Iran. The noise bomb challenge, in which the members were asked by Mr. Hosseini to make noises with noise bombs and fireworks on the evening of 6th of June 2017 at 9 p.m. as a symbolic act to wake Iranians up and let them know of restart opposition. In the challenge of wisdom, restart fans asked Iranian celebrities to express their opinion about restart, even though it would have opposed the movement. In this challenge, not only restart opposition members did not receive any response to their question, but also they got blocked by the celebrities not to be able to post any more comments. Again, this is from Farsi translated to English. That's why it sounds a little bit off. So in the swearing challenge, restart followers flooded to Iranian politicians and politically involved celebrity social media pages and sweared at them and asked about their silence against restart opposition. This way, Saeed Mohammed Hosseini taught Iranians that politicians are only servants to their people and are not in any higher position than the rest of the citizens. Therefore, by swearing at them, opposition members intended to break the ego politicians had created for themselves in the past centuries. So again, as you can see, it's the whole restart movement is clearly getting political uh, about their way of you know going about things. I guess you could say, and just to give you that idea of like, well, you know, they're actually making some real changes, and uh, you know, I guess you could say like nonviolent, right? It's it, that's the point of it all. It's all very nonviolent, and I think that that's what really is a beautiful thing. Um, and those are making real changes. So anybody that's listening to this right now, I mean, continuing to listen to this really long video or podcast is this is, um, this is a really exciting thing, right? I mean, yeah, the Islamic Republic regime still is in place, but based on the current events that are going to be, that I'm about to go into right now, things are really changing. So it's funny that a book from 2018 and these other movements really come together, right? It, it, it actually brings that book to life a little bit. It shows you that there are real, there are actually people who are trying to make real changes in Iran. Uh, and so that's really cool. And I think that that's uh, something really, really inner, um, uh, interesting and also entertaining to, to watch unfold. So, um, 
the current status of Iran. Here we go. So just recently, Trump ordered a surgical strike to kill what people are calling the next leader of Iran, General Soleimani. This was in the planning for months. No more ground wars in the Middle East. Simply take out leaders who uh, are obviously encouraging violence against Americans and, again, who are um, encouraging violence in their own country. So here's the thing. So with that being said, this strike on this general was a uh, – we are we are now a couple weeks out of that now, and we can see that it was a very wise decision by the president to make. So when you think about it, this general was not only was he responsible for coordinating and orchestrating attacks on American military personnel uh, during the Iraq War of two thousand three, but the guy had just ordered the attack on protesters that are a part of the movement I just stated to you, the restart movement. That he just ordered attacks on protesters that were part of that movement and other protesters that were just general protesters against the Islamic regime, killing over a thousand people. I mean, think about that. If anything like that happened in America, that would be the end of everything, right? And so at the end of the day, we've got to really look at these kinds of things, right? So also when you when you look at it, the general was killed, but at the end of the day, you've got, um, you know, there's different people who believe in different things. And, you know, there's um, this guy was going to be the next runner up, the prime minister. Right. And, you know, when you look at that, it's like you're basically taking out somebody before they make any real changes, before they actually um, do something right, before they actually make a difference or um, what am I trying to say, got into power. I mean, he killed the guy who was going to get into power and who was supposed to be even worse than the Ayatollah. Now, also not to mention, um, I have reason to believe that People in the Ayatollah or people in the government of Iran right now, even the bad people, didn't even like General Soleimani uh, because he was a little bit too ruthless. He was a little too powerful. So at the end of the day, you know, it's like Trump did a favor to the people in is in in Iran, not just the Iranian people who were suffering under uh, the generals, you know. Uh, uh, orders to kill them and 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 to stop protests. Um, not like that won't happen anymore. But the point is that like you killed somebody big time who was a part of that. He's also helping out these other you know Iranians in their struggle for power. Like who's going to take control after the Ayatollah dies, basically. So here's the here's the problem now. So when you have these kind of protests going on again, on and off because of the Islamic regime, then to save face. The Iranian Republic sent missiles to an empty United States uh, military base, which, again, I've said that on my Instagram, but I believe that the the there were no Americans killed there because we, as America, we knew they were going to strike that specific target. We knew it. Uh, whether we got word from the Russians or other people, we knew they were going to strike within hours. So we got all personnel out of there, and that's why no one died. And I have an inkling feeling that the Islamic Republic didn't want to kill a single American. Why? Because they really did believe Trump at his word that many people would be hurt, like many other cities or other places, you know, would be under attack, which again, I don't agree with. I don't think we should be bombing or going into Iran whatsoever. I think that's the wrong move. But killing a leader of, of Iran, an assassination, well, that's how that's how the military operates. That's how things are done. That's, that's a real um, strategic political move. Um, so again, somebody who was responsible for the deaths and who was on a terrorist watch list 
or he was a part of a kill list, basically. I mean, he was on a list, so, um, and he knew it too. Not like he was surprised. So uh, they had to save face. So the Iranian people or the Iranian Republic uh, basically shot those missiles so that they could tell their people, oh, we, we, we avenged this general that, that was killed. We avenged him by sending missiles. So, okay, well, all right, everything's over. And then what did the Islamic uh, government say? They said, okay, well, we're not going to do anything anymore. Um, you know, we're done. Uh, that's it. And so Trump's like, okay, that's it. Comes out, huge press conference, basically says, all right, stand down. You know, everything's cool. We're just going to let the people handle it. Now, what also ironically happened on that same evening was because tensions were very high, they were sending in these missiles to blow up the base in Iraq, the United States base in Iraq. Well, there was also a um, missile, a defense system uh, operation that happened in Tehran, which was a um, which there was a no-fly order, so no no airplanes were supposed to be flying in during that time, and all of a sudden, planes were. This plane, this Ukrainian plane, a Boeing, guys, imagine just, you know, a regular Western, well, it's an Eastern European country, but, you know, just a, a regular plane actually having citizens who were Iranians and also 62 Canadians. And there were apparently seven countries had people, seven different countries had people on this flight flying into Tehran, which is the capital of Iran, and it was shot down. So that plane was shot down the same night they were shooting missiles into the uh, into Iraq at the United base. It the Ukrainian airline was shot down because it was a defensive maneuver where there was a defensive missile system fired off because they believed the Iranians believed that those that that plane flying was an American bomber. So they went and shot it down. But in reality, it was just citizens. All 200, was it 270 people died? Every single one of them. Think about that. 62 Canadians. So these people all died. And what happened then was, you know, basically, well, the US media said that Iran didn't do it. That just goes to show the matrix. I mean, they're. They're covering for Iran. It's just amazing to me that, that we're watching and witnessing what, what we've seen in the United States media over the last four years. But think about it like this. Once that happened, clearly now the Iranian government is, n is in trouble with not just the United States. Now they're in trouble with Canada, the UK, uh, Ukraine. Uh, I mean, there was a bunch of people pissed, basically like, whoa, you killed all these people. You know, Trump kills one guy. You know, but then you, the Iranian government, just shot down a plane full of citizens. So that was a huge outrage. Not good, not a good look, nothing. So Iranians came out and said, we're protesting again. And this time you can see videos and stuff. They were protesting and they were saying stuff they sh they, they've never said before. So they were saying things like death to the Islamic Republic dictatorship. And the people do not disrespect the flag of USA and Israel. They say all over Iran, this is a quote from in Farsi, we are not the enemy of the USA and Israel. Our enemy is the people of the Islamic Republic of Iran. Think about that. So the Iranian civilians, the people who are just regular people who are under the oppression of this regime, they do not want to fight America. And I would also equally say uh, that any Republican that's saying that we should invade Iran or we should fight Iran, 
I think that that's a stupid idea because I also equally think that the civilians there in Iran do not want American troops on their soil. I believe personally that they are able to handle they are able to handle their own business. They are able to take care of their own thing. And so, you know, it's just absolutely phenomenal to see anything close to this um, this level of uh, activity, I guess you could say, political activity going on there. Um, and then it's so funny because the Congress, which is to, which is controlled by the uh, the House, is controlled by the Democrats. They wanted to vote for a resolution in Iran, basically as a con as a Congress, as American Congress, supporting the Iranian protesters. And uh, believe it or not, the Democrats in that case um, actually said that they don't want to say that they voice the protesters. Um, and so again, these are not just regular protesters. These are not communists. These are people who have been dealing with a real regime. And so Donald Trump tweeted, the Democrats and the fake news are trying to make terrorist Soleimani into a wonderful guy only because I did what should have been done for 20 years. Anything I do, whether it's the economy, military, or otherwise will be scorned by the, the radical left. Do nothing Democrats, as he says. Uh, and so there's all these people from uh, Iran who were who saying, I mean, this is just a tweet. These are just all these tweets. But it's Nancy Pelosi, which is the head uh, of the of the House right now on the Democratic side. Um, is Nancy Pelosi Soleimani's girlfriend? Oh, Trump, you broke Nancy's heart by killing Soleimani, who cleans up Nancy's tears when she's crying. So again, this is just in Farsi, but it's it's translated over. Um, one reason uh, the, the, that Pelosi, which is the head Democrat, dismisses Iran protests counterproductive is because Iranian regime apologists in the West have been pumping the same idea on mainstream media and in well-known papers. Uh, the Democrats delude themselves with disinformation, and now Nancy Pelosi is trending. That was funny. So another, these are just tweets, guys, uh, coming from people. I voted Democrat in the last few years, but I'm going to vote for Donald Trump because while Democrats are trying to find ways to minimize Mullah's crimes and appease the regime, POTUS killed the regime's terror mastermind and supported the Iranian people. So these are all Iranians. This is what Iranians have to say. These are not Americans. These are Iranians tweeting and saying all this stuff about this, right? So um, I'm reading from an article on the Gateway Pundit. And so anyways... Um, the most recent of nationwide protests across Iran that began on Saturday, this was like two weeks ago, in response to the Iran, uh, the regime's admission that the, they, had, they admitted it, by the way, the Islamic Re Revolutionary Guards Corps had shot down a civilian international airliner. Think about that. Continued into this week. So these are the protests. The IRGC, uh, which is the Islamic Republic Revolutionary Guard, um, and its Basij paramilitary ferociously attacked the mass ma manifestations of the Iranian populace, as is their custom, and many examples of brutal violations of human rights were recorded and posted online. Monday, January 13th, saw demonstrations continuing in multiple Iranian cities. Here, students at Tehran's Sharif University of Technology repeated their chant of, quote, they killed our geniuses and replaced them with clerics. Think about that. Think about that. Think about that. I'm going to repeat this. This is what Iranians are saying in the Tehran, in Tehran, the university there. They killed our geniuses and replaced them with clerics. So imagine if all the intellectuals in this country were overthrown, killed, and they were replaced by, I don't even know, pastors uh, in, in the Christian faith. Again, you know, is that 
I'm not saying Christianity would do that because I mean, they haven't yet. Uh, but the point is that that's what the that's what the Muslims did. Okay, that's what they did. So in other spots, uh, the people confronted the regime forces, sent out to disperse them, and clashes erupted. So there's I'm look, I'm looking at all these videos and and tweets and I mean you can't even it's just unbelievable un, just all this stuff. Tuesday, January 14th brought more protests. Students at Tehran University began to demonstrate and masses of ordinary citizens joined them into the evening. The IRGC responded heavily and scenes of guardsmen beating people were recorded. Before the regime cut off internet and mobile phone access, universities were raided and intense gunfire was heard around Tehran. So just going over, these are just, this is happening right now. This is gunfire. This is killings. This is, this is real revolution. And it's, it's right now. I mean, it's January. We're not even out of January yet, 2020. And this is what's been going on. Protests went on despite the heavy crackdown Wednesday. Uh, the funeral of some of the victims who died when the Ukrainian airliner was brought down erupted into an anti-regime protest. Tehran University students, meanwhile, held a sit-down strike on Thursday to protest in support of their colleagues who were arrested and detained. So again, um, there's so many tweets, videos, I mean, just people getting shot, demonstrations, protests. I mean, it's unreal. Um, and then we've got our U.S. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo and his staff have continued to express their support for the Iranian people, calling out the uh, the Khomeinist regime for its tyranny. So Khomeini, right? Um, so again, you know, this is this is telling you the update, right? So we killed our general. They shot down an airline. And now their people are super pissed. They're using the airline as cover. Basically, like, now that everybody else is upset in the world, now that they're, now that finally the Iranian regime is under scrutiny, we're going to take to the streets and we're going to show the world that we are with them. We, we, we don't want this, they, we don't want this Muslim republic. We don't want this Islamic republic anymore. So again, just going to show you, like, that's, that's how important we are. So in closing, guys, this is what I wrote, okay? The most efficient way to handle Iran is to support the groups that are, are creating a real defined change politically in a peaceful way. So think about that. All I think we should do, our State Department should do, our foreign affairs should be handled is to support those groups. I'm not saying we should arm them like we did in Libya and we overthrew that. Uh, we overthrew Gaddafi. I might do a podcast about that. Who knows? But what, I'm not saying about arming them or anything. I'm just saying... Hell, give these, give them some Bibles, you know, give them things that are going to help them. It's about indoctrinating these people with freedom. They already know they want it. They just need to know how giving them our constitution just so they can read it so they can, you know, go over it. Uh, they already kind of know this stuff. Again, the restart movement is already good enough at getting people aware, getting people awake, getting people educated to become more intellectual. So this is my opinion on it. The future of Iran is bright. There shouldn't be any war to destroy that country. If there is, I will be against it. Just mark my words. If we ever send a single U.S. troop there and it's to do any kind of harm, I think that it's the wrong thing to do. I think that um, regional powers in that area should handle that situation if it arises. I think that... Um, if there's a revolution that does take place, we need to know exactly who's in control. We need to know exactly their intentions. They more than likely will come onto U.S. media and declare their voices be heard, and we will hear them out. Uh, I don't think we should arm themselves, but again, I don't know. Uh, well, I don't think we should arm them or anything, but I just don't know the situation. We may have to do something, but I don't think that we should arm them. I think that we should just maybe even economically support them because watch, watch, watch. Imagine in Iran that 
that got that kicked out the Ayatollah and kicked out the Islamic regime and did become a secular nation once again. Imagine how cool it would be. I mean, Iran is the coolest place. I mean, I'd love to visit Iran in my lifetime, you know? The Persian Empire, all the historical stuff there. I mean, I'd love to visit Israel. Imagine what it would be like for Israel. Hell, I mean, Israel would be better off, uh, you know? But for some reason, Israel has this ferocious attitude towards Iran, and they just want to kill them. And it's just... It's sick, you know, and so I just think that at the end of the day, watch as the the future of Iran and you mark my words. I mean, save this podcast, like watch Iran turn into a peaceful, incredible country. It may take about a decade from now, but it just imagine it turns into something great. Imagine we can create you know, almost like a Western atmosphere there. Imagine if we could bring a free market there, capitalism. I mean, that would be so beautiful. Imagine having an ally there in Iran. That way we can use, you know, more of strategic, it's just strategic partnerships. I mean, you know, that's the future. And Trump has showed support for that. You know, he's saying that the the people of Iran, we are with you. We are with you. And so I think that's just so important. And so um, I'd like to see the Iranians take control and install a constitutional republic there in Iran. So, yeah, I mean, you know, uh, at the end of the day, it's really cool. I think that it's very interesting. If you're from Iran or you, if you listen to this whole podcast, I mean, I'm just blown away. Um, but I just absolutely love that you would even take the time. And, um, you know, at the end of the day, let me know. I mean, give me your comments and your your thoughts on this matter. I think that it's so important uh, that Iran get their freedom. And I think that, like I said in the beginning of this podcast, it is the uh, demonstration of freedom and awakening that is happening all over the world. I think it's absolutely phenomenal what's going on. And so just to see us moving into a uh, worldwide uh, future, a, uh, an awakening, uh, breaking the matrix, uh, one matrix is definitely the Islamic regime right now. Uh, I think this is just a beautiful thing watching us all come together and realize that the future of humanity is in the hearts of people that want freedom, that want to establish justice, the rule of law, and a constitutional republic just the way America has. And that's how we as America can help other countries is by setting the example and by doing that ourselves, rooting out the corruption, breaking the matrix in a big way here. We are the, Americans are the ultimate matrix breakers. They're unbelievable. And so to have something like that here and uh, to export, export ideas, not just goods, but ideas, books, culture. That's what we're about. We're exporting Hollywood and, and music, which is great. That's awakened a lot of people. But at the end of the day, we need to start exporting political ideology that is empowering others and that empowers us, at least Americans that are awake to uh, some of our some of our own rights getting taken away here. But at the end of the day, our rights that are still indeed in place. So again, uh, I'm going to read this conclusion to you guys, and I'm going to go ahead and close out the podcast. So thank you for taking the time to tune in. I plan on conver- uh, uh, covering current events on this podcast and giving you an overall understanding of each situation. It's clear that I have my own opinion in many subjects, but I do my very best to present to you many different angles to the same situation. This is a part of breaking the matrix because it deals with geopolitical understandings. If you don't understand certain situations on a worldwide scale, you'll be easily manipulated to believe whatever you're told from our media and tech elites. Now, that being said, that's a close, and I hope you guys enjoyed this podcast. Uh, You guys have a great rest of your day. Leave a review, comment, let me know, DM me if you watch this far. I think it's unbelievable that you did, and I'm super thankful. Uh, but overall, thank you for tuning in, guys. Peace.